Welcome to episode number 60 of the Jackson Hole Connection, brought to you by Giver, a garage-born outdoors and apparel company. Please visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash giver, G-I-V-E-R, to learn more. I'm Stephan Abrams, your host today. I believe if you desire a truly fulfilling life, both personally and professionally, then you must be willing to find a connection with people outside of your everyday influence, which is why I created the Jackson Hole Connection podcast. Today's guest is a third-generation Cuban-American who's used his experience as a civil rights lawyer to help protect access climbers have around the world. Armando Menacal's passion for the sport of climbing helped fuel him to build a climbing community in Cuba and around the world. Armando will share with us his connection and experience with the Cuban government, as well as how you can experience the beauty and the people of Cuba. And if you're lucky, you might just run into Armando during the winter months while you visit Cuba too. Armando, awesome having you here as a guest on the Jackson Hole Connection. When you accepted my invitation, I gave myself a big high five there. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, I'm very happy to be here. So. Pronounce your last name so I say it properly. In Spanish, it's Menocal. Menocal? Yeah, so okay. I, I go for the closest approximation. Which is? Menocal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. But uh, I've long ago accepted that it's easier just to give things an English pronunciation <laughs> when you're in this country. True, true. And the other day, you were telling me that Miami used to not be called Miami. That's right. When I was growing up there in the 40s and 50s, it was still a southern town, as, as most of Florida still is. But in those days, it was called Miami, um, as opposed to Miami which is very close to the Latin pronunciation. What is the Latin pronunciation? Miami. Miami, yeah. okay. But, uh, and I'd almost, I'd forgotten about that. And then a couple of years ago, a friend, I was actually our class president in high school, sent out this video, it was a 10 minute Chevrolet commercial in 1948 of a, convert, a Chevy convertible driving around Miami. No kidding. In the commercial. That's what they used the entire commercial, Miami. And I went, oh my gosh, I've totally forgotten that. I'm going to see if I can Google that and find it on YouTube. <laughs> Chevrolet, 1948 Chevrolet commercial. Yeah. Commercial, Miami. Yeah. Miami. <laughs> so maybe back then it was called Miami. 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 Yeah. Hi, I'm Steph, and I'm from Mississippi. I mean, I did grow up in the South. Yeah. I did grow up in the South. So, Not much difference between South Georgia, South Southern. Uh, that's right. Alabama and Northern Florida. That's Mississippi. What does the Southerner say? What's the Southerner's last words? Hey, you fellers, watch this. Oh. <laughs> or here, hold my beer and watch this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was reading an article that you sent me, and you are a third-generation Cuban-American. Right. My uh, father and grandfather were both born in the United States and Key West. My mother uh, was from Cuba, born and raised there. But your great-great-grandfather left Cuba and when did he leave Cuba? It was my great-great-grandfather and grandmother. Uh-huh. They left during the 19th century, uh, during what in Cuba was called the Ten-Year War. It was a ten-year war of independence against Spain. Cuba was one of the last colonies that Spain maintained in the Western Hemisphere. 
and it uh, it ended unsuccessfully <laughs> for the revolutionaries. And that was actually the time of the first Cuban exodus to the United States. Uh, many of the people who had been involved in that uh, revolution fled Cuba and went to Key West, which is where my great-grandparents landed. And what did your great-grandparents do for, for work? Were they in the tobacco business? Actually, my grandmother, my, excuse me, my great-grandmother, I discovered eventually doing a little research, was a tobacco roller, one of the people who made cigars. And because when they got to Key West, that was when they created the first uh, uh, on-U.S. shore tobacco industry. It eventually, years and years later, moved to Tampa to a neighborhood called Ybor City. And that also became one of the first Cuban sort of communities in the United States. And they still produced uh, tobacco there. And the Key West tobacco industry uh, eventually disappeared. But my great-grandmother rolled cigars, and my, great, and my grandfather's first job was a tobacco grader. That's the person who gets when the leaves come in and decide which, uh, which part goes for the out, outer wrapper, which part is the filler on the inside, and they divide hmm. the tobacco according, according to its quality and what it's best for. Interesting. And so... What, was the tobacco being grown down there? In no, it was coming from outside. It was coming from the outside. Yeah, Key West okay. is such a small one. You okay. You can anything anyway. Because I learned recently from a family member on my mom's side, but so it's my cousin on his side, because his dad's been in the tobacco business for generations. And up in Ohio was a big growing area. And that's his family was in the tobacco business in the Ohio River Valley area. Well, it's not yeah. too surprising, particularly from the 19th century, that many places in the United States had tobacco industries. There still mm -hmm. is one in New England producing mostly cigarettes, particularly the paper for cigarettes. Mm, interesting. Uh, and then, of course, the Carolinas and Kentucky and Tennessee. Cool. Because tobacco was one of the main products of the uh, Western Hemisphere. So getting out of the world of tobacco <laughs> and more into you and who Armando Menacal is, what interests me is we were talking at the gym and you were talking about how you're going to be leaving soon to go stay in Cuba. And I was, I, I would say that you're the first person that I've met that I know that stays in Cuba. So how long have you been doing that and, and, and why? Other than my wife, I'm the only other one <laughs> that I know that does it as well. Okay. <laughs> um, well, we've been, well, the, the full story is that I went to Cuba in 1998 after a 40-year absence. Because I was born in the U.S., mm -hmm. but my mother took me to Cuba all the time when I was a child. She told me I went for the first time when I was three months old. So I had an old, long-time association with Cuba, and I had some family there, not, not many, because most of the Menacals left Cuba after the revolution. But after a 40-year absence, I went back, and I discovered uh, this great place that no one had ever climbed, the valley called Vinales, and I started uh, recruiting American friends to go there climbing with me. We started uh, uh, creating new routes, and I was going there five or six months a year in the spring and fall, still spending the summers here in Jackson in the middle of the winter. And I did that until oh, 2005. And then the Cuban government kicked me out. <laughs> and So kind of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And then they let me back in for no apparent reason other than passage of time. Uh, and maybe new computers that <laughs> didn't have old. <laughs> they bought all all of our old computers, our Commodore Vic twenties. <laughs> yeah, and maybe they didn't have migration programs for mm-hmm. moving data. Uh, in 2016, they let me back in. It was about the same time that the doctors here told me, you know, maybe it'd be best for you to stop backcountry skiing, which was about my favorite form of skiing at that time. And I said, you know, I said to my wife, we already have a house there that we built, a little tiny house. And maybe we should try to see if we can make that a livable place and stop shoveling snow and <laughs> I can't ski it. And that's sort of how it started. Uh, went there the first winter, 2016, 17. Our house had been set there vacant for over 10 years. And in the tropics, uh, that's a... <laughs> death sentence for houses, particularly one that was wood walls. Uh, so we started rebuilding it and then doing an addition, uh, learning how to do construction in a country that literally has no hardware stores. What? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and we've we finished it, doing it that way three winters. Uh, so now we have a comfortable house there. It's been easier now that there's uh, good flights back and forth. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, we, the U.S.'s policy is once again trying to reimpose all parts of the embargo. So there's lots of shortages in Cuba. We're already anticipating this winter may not be as easy. Mm-hmm. And there's always the fear that the U.S. will stop all commercial flights there, just as they did uh, recently with all cruise ships. So we'll see. So when you were a child going there, you stopped at what point? Oh, I'd say once I got to uh, junior high. But the why? Oh, the why was most just like most kids. Uh, that was something I associated with parents, you know. Okay. The they did, and I wanted to spend time with my own friends and kids. And I didn't go. There was a long gap. I didn't go, and then I went for my cousin's. It was my age, 15th. 15th birthday, mm-hmm. which in Latin cultures is a big deal. And then I didn't go again for. 40 years. Okay. And when you went back as an adult compared to going in as a kid, because by that time it had been under a communist rule, what was different? Oh, everything. I mean, it's a country that has been frozen in time. Mm-hmm. It's both good and bad. It's very it's very romantic for the foreigners to come there. They can see uh, a place, what, what a colonial Latin country was like and a culture that existed long ago because there's been no development. Buildings, original buildings that were there a century ago are still there. And they probably haven't been painted. Whoa. <laughs> for the last, remember that? No hardware stores. Yeah, that's, yeah, okay. <laughs> so it's strikingly beautiful, but at the same time, it's it's a very hard place to uh, to live. It's interesting to see a failed economy, just the way the Soviet Union's version of communism has failed. But at the same time, culturally, it's totally different. I mean, Cubans are incapable of being morose and <laughs> sad. They're just a, a very open people who will do whatever they can to enjoy life, even if they're uh, suffering <laughs> at the same time. And what do you think drives that culture to stay happy and enjoy life compared to the Russian culture under, you know, communist rule? 
Well, that's a that's a very interesting and hard question because obviously uh, it's something that's ingrained, and I think it has many threads. Uh, for example, music, just part of the heart and soul of the country. Um, I think that's a uh, that's a part of it. Um, but I think that's just the nature of the people. They're just gregarious, very open. They don't keep secrets. <laughs> They're used to living, and maybe it's also living in the tropics where your windows are open all the time, your neighbors hear everything. Uh, you're saying, my wife's house in uh, Santi Spiritus, for example, there's three families living underneath, and there's a shared courtyard going up through the middle of the building. Mm-hmm. We hear every conversation that the people downstairs have. Hmm. Everything's kind of open and in your face. Okay. Is that typical of Latin American countries or island um, cultures? I, I can't say that. Okay. Uh, I, I've never seen a, a Latin country that is, let's say, where the people are the same as the Soviet Union countries were. Mm-hmm. But I'm hesitant to, to say that they're all the same. I mean, I know a lot. I've been to Brazil, and the Brazilians, they're wonderful, very similar people in culture and ethnicity uh, to the Cubans and uh, a lot of other countries are that way as well. But I don't want to make a across-the-board generalization. Sure. You're probably, you're, you're probably more right than wrong about that, Stefan. So you just touched on something that music is, in the, is the heart and soul of the Cuban culture. Where, where did that come from? What's Well, it has a lot of uh, threads. One of the main one, of course, is... Um, that you know, Cuba is Cuba is a mixed race country, but it's basically whites and blacks. Christopher Columbus and the Spaniards in the first century or two managed to kill off uh, the island's uh, indigenous people. There are some threads left, but but not many. And the blacks tended to come every time they were uh, well. They brought them over as slaves, mm-hmm. particularly in the 19th century for the sugar production. Uh, but also they came in waves whenever there were um, slave revolts in places like Haiti and other islands of the Caribbean. And I, I think that link to Africa is probably the main source for Cuban music. Fascinating. I never knew so much of the history and culture of, of Cuba. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> you, get around, you, go, you go around the island uh, and you realize, particularly if you go to the eastern island, eastern end of the island, just how how powerful music is. And there's, you know, there are live venues for music all the time, everywhere in Cuba. It's rare to have someone that isn't listening to uh, to music. Hmm. I mean, you know, cell phones have made a big <laughs> uh, introduction to Cuba because it's also the country that has the least wired com- country in the world. I mean, less than five percent of the homes have telephones. So cell phones now have become really important. But I think the main use for cell phones is people download music onto it. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds like the current generation too. Because you don't have to, you don't have to have time on your cell phone because Cubans do it, use their cell phones by buying time to use uh, instead of just buying the line. Mm-hmm. And okay. it takes money, you know, right? The main currency now that is coming there, maybe this is the beginning of a cryptocurrency. People, people in Cuba now rarely ask you for just money. Like, give me, I need five bucks to do this. 
They'll ask you to give them five minutes of time from your phone to theirs. You can trade time via phones. Oh, very easy. Hmm. And that's, yeah. And that's one of the most common. My my wife gets that all the time. The amount of friends that, that Laura helps with. They, uh-huh. They have to call their mother in somewhere else. <laughs> that's very sweet of her. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what... Uh, that's what the beginning, you know, I said, maybe it's going to become a cryptocurrency. Oh, the first interesting cryptocurrency. <laughs> but uh, that's what people use their phones for first. I mean, mm-hmm. They want to use it for communication, but they have to have time. Uh huh. True. So what originally brought you here to Jackson Hole, Wyoming? Well, I'd been in California for 25 years as a trial lawyer doing civil rights cases. And I wanted to change. I went and worked for a couple of years in Nepal. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, and then I uh, came back to the U.S. and I, it, it was the beginning of the '90s. Right after I got back from Nepal in '94, I started started using technology for international communications. I thought, you know, I I can live and work almost anywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I started looking for somewhere else I could move. My children uh, were adults, except the. The youngest was getting ready to go to college in a year or two. And so, yeah, and I'd been uh, divorcing my wife for four or five years. So I, I started looking for somewhere else to live. I wanted a place where I could climb or ski every day in a good community of people. That's what I looked for. And I'd been to Jackson on and off over the years. And uh, finally, 1996. Actually, it, it wasn't that uh, straight up a line, Stephanie. You know, for a year or two, I tried to, I went to different places and, and looked at them like here. I came and spent oh, like a month skiing here. I think it was nine, 1995 in the middle of winter. Friends loaned me their house. And I was, I was trying to make it, uh, being a lawyer, I was very analytical. Where do I want to live the rest of my life? And that, would, that by making it such a big decision, mm-hmm. I made it really hard. <laughs> Did you have a few spreadsheets and <laughs> No, not quite. They're all carried around my brain. Okay. And I basically said, you know, all I gotta really decide is where do I want to live right now? What and do you... I said, and then it was easy. Oh well yeah. I'm gonna go back to Jackson. <laughs> so what do you think happened in your mind that allowed you to accept where do I just want to live right now versus having to decide for the rest of my life? Because you can always pick up and go someplace else. I know. Well, I was sitting in California in the same place I had been. I'd come back from Nepal and then landed back there. And yeah, I needed an address like so my youngest kid could still go to the school district where he he was attending class. And then uh, you know where I went, continued on my search. And then I realized the search wasn't getting anywhere. <laughs> And I just said, well, let me just dumb down this question. Mm-hmm. One that I can handle. You pulled the lawyer out of it. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> and then it got really, it was easy. And I've been here ever since. And in the right times, the right seasons, when you first moved here, were you climbing every day? Well, I was climbing in the summer. I meant you could do one or the other. Sure. Yeah. I learned eventually that mud season, mm-hmm. <laughs> there are times when you, when you don't do either. It's hard to beat Jackson for outdoor recreation. Oh, sure. How did you get into climbing growing up, growing up in Miami? <laughs> <laughs> I 
And not a, most of my outdoor time in the Everglades are on the water. <laughs> I mean, you can climb up something over there, maybe a tree, but not many mountains. And I have a, a climbing friend that uh, was the first person who uh, uh, summited the highest point in each of the 50 states. And he said, this was back in the 80s, maybe even the end of the 70s. He said the hardest one was Florida. Because that was pre-GPS days. <laughs> find which, the top of which little knoll with uh, orange groves <laughs> was the highest. Took him all day. <laughs> I bet it He'd did. Summit one, and then he'd look at me and go, oh, wait a minute, may I tell you that one? <laughs> but any of them. I, I think the highest thing in Florida was would have been a freeway overpass. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, no, I didn't do it. I was uh, living and working in San Francisco. I, we went on a family vacation to Colorado, and this uh, friend uh, took me out scrambling. This was in 1969. Uh, we climbed up a mountain, and he said, oh, you, well, you've just been doing technical rock climbing. I said, well, this is fun. I called up the Sierra Club when I got back home to California, and they said, well, this group called the Rock Climbing Section meets every weekend in Mount Tamalpais. And I started that way. That's fantastic. Two months later, I was leading my first routes, and actually doing first ascents in the, in the Sierra. And the here's a nice connection is around that time is about when one of my previous guests, who was about episode in the first 10, mm-hmm. Bill Johnson, and he started coming out here as a teenager climbing. And he would go back to California during the winter because there was nothing to do out here back then. It was pre-Teton Village, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. And he'd work at somebody's little iron shop called Chenard Ironworks. (laughs) Down in Ventura, California. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what he would do in the winter is he'd work there with Yvonne um, building climbing gear and testing it out with, with him. And my first climbing gear was all prototypes. Uh, being made by people at home. Mm-hmm. I hear that someone's making a, a, a three-inch bong bong that <laughs> no one else was making, and you'd make contact and go and sit there in someone's living room floor mm-hmm. <laughs> looking at the the pieces they made just like Yvonne Chouinard did. He, he started out selling his stuff, making an inventory and taking the Yosemite Valley and selling it at the trunk of his car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where Black Diamond ended up coming over time. Yeah. yeah. Mercy became Black Diamond. Yeah. And so your passion for climbing actually relates back to Cuba because you did climbing all over the world. You were a climber all over the world. But then what inspired you to take it to Cuba? Well, I was there, as I said, in 98 for the first time. Uh and I was looking mostly for my family roots, and I was just curious. I, I'd really fled away from that whole life of Florida and Cuba. I wanted a different life, and so I headed west. That's about as far away as you could get in San Francisco. But then eventually, you know, years later, I, I realized that I wanted to learn more about, you know, the family. And, and so I didn't even tell my mother when I went. She was living in Miami then still. And uh, so that's what I, I went to do, see if I could find places where we'd lived and discovered it uh, and kind of reconnect. And I wound up with a few days 
left in the trip. And my Lonely Planet guidebook said that uh, there was this place called the Valley of Vinales, which was a miniature Yosemite. I had my doubts <laughs> that there could be anything like that in Cuba, but I rented a car and I wanted to see the western end of the island. So I went out there for two or three days and I found these uh, pretty large uh, limestone walls. Uh, and I started asking everybody there locally if they had ever seen anyone climb them. They said no. And, I uh, hacked a trail up to one of them and looked at it and checked it out. And it was pretty spectacular. It's a valley, you know, it's a, it, since then it's become a World Heritage Site. And it's a, very much like Jackson, about 10,000 people in town. And it's surrounded now by what is a national park, but it, it wasn't that then. And I was back there three months later with uh, three climbing friends. And we started creating <laughs> Cuban climbing. We tried hard to locate Cubans who climbed to see if there, if there was an indigenous uh, community of climbers and we actually managed to find them and we brought some equipment. They, they were just starting out climbing on their own. They just had some caving equipment which essentially used a lot of the same equipment climbers use, harnesses, ropes, some bolts to, to tie the ropes to the, hold the ropes to the walls and uh, they were had climbing magazines. These were all young, young men and women, and uh, they just latched on to us, and we spent a month together climbing, and then I was back there. Well, by that time, I'd also met the woman who's now my wife mm -hmm. in Cuba. Okay. And uh, I, I was the one that just kept going back every month till, you know, till summer, but I would imagine I made, uh, in the first three or four years, a dozen trips and eventually I even created a guiding company there. And you have a website about climbing in Cuba, and that is? Cubaclimbing.com. Cubaclimbing.com. Yeah. And you wrote a climbing guidebook. Yes. And is that still in print? No, it's out of print. Okay. Now, now, now it's a collector's editions only. Okay. And my co-author, uh, my good Cuban friend, Anibo Fernandez, who was one of the people I met on that first climbing trip. Mm -hmm. He's an outstanding young man. Uh, when I met him, I brought him back in, to Havana and dropped him off. What I didn't know when I dropped him off that first trip was that he went straight to jail. What? Because, he, well, Cuba still has a draft. Okay. And he was uh, in the military. And when he heard that there were climbers, foreign climbers in Cuba for the first time, he came to Vinales and climbed with us. And he just went a <laughs> And went AWOL? Oh, gosh. As he said, when there were real climbers here, I was not going to pass this out. <laughs> and only, only in later trips did I find out the price he paid Oy. Uh, to be able to climb with us. And he's now uh, continuing the guidebook and working on the second edition. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Armando, we're going to take a quick break and get a word from one of our sponsors and we'll be right back. Do you know what your passion is? Do you know what it really means to give it your all? Well, the folks at Giver, this is their passion. It is what gets them out of bed every morning to chug a half gallon of coffee and eat a one pound burrito and give to the rest of the day everything they just ate and more. Giver, to you, give it your all. Check out their selection of personalized branded of 
kick-ass gloves, and more at the jacksonholeconnection.com slash giver, G-I-V-E-R. My pick last year was the old faithful top. You have not experienced comfort until you pulled one of these bad boys on. Trust me. Now, go and give her. Armando, I'm loving the history behind your family of Cuba and climbing in Cuba. I'm not a climber myself, but I just love hearing how you've helped open up climbing over there. And you were just recently talking about your website, climbingcuba.com. Now, you were going back there regularly while technically you weren't supposed to go from the U.S. to Cuba. You were, how are you getting there? Well, I was going illegally uh, through uh, mostly Cancun. Uh-huh. Would you have to spend a certain amount of time in Cancun? You no, just no. Okay. I'd fly down. I mean, the reason I use Cancun is I could do it in a day. Uh-huh. From Jackson, Denver, Denver, Cancun, and there was a mid-afternoon flight. Cancun to Cuba. Uh-huh. I'd be there that night. And would they stamp your passport or? No, back in the, um, the nine, well, really it was the aughts. The Cuban government uh, uh, is, has always welcomed American tourists. They welcome all tourists. After the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, they started to need a tourism industry to, to earn foreign capital instead of having it given to them by the Soviet Union. Um, so they would not mark the passports. Mm-hmm. Interesting. The same thing happens. Israel does the same thing. They don't mark people's passports in case they decide to go to a an Arab country. An Arab country. Uh huh. Because then you wouldn't be allowed right. into the Arab country if they've seen that you've been to Israel. Right. Yeah. Okay. What do you feel? is though people could learn from you if they wanted to go visit Cuba. What is the best way currently for them to to get there to, to find out some tourist information? Well, first thing people should realize is that uh, regardless of what they read in the press, uh, going to Cuba is still legal. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, President Trump has changed some of the rules, uh, but he's both... Uh, made it harder of, on some of the ways that people justified trips before, but he's opened up new ones. I don't know why, but um, the fact is that uh, there are categories in which some people can claim to be traveling legally to Cuba. And I actually think they're better. <laughs> don't want to give the president credit for doing that intentional. <laughs> um, but uh, I think he was trying to take away the what the avenue that uh, uh, was being used, but created other ones just to just allow some sort of opening. But actually, it, it's a better way. And the current easiest way to go is there's a category that if you go to support the Cuban people, and what that means is that, for example, you stay in people's private homes uh, as opposed to staying in hotels because. All the hotels are either owned by the government or operated by the government and a foreign joint venture. Mm-hmm. And they're also pretty lousy. It wouldn't be bad for someone to spend a night or two on it so they'd really see what a socialist-run hotel is like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when they started doing hotels, uh, people found that the food was so bad uh, and the service took so long they were complaining about it. So the Cuban government switched everything to buffets. Uh-huh. 
so at least you didn't have to wait as long for bad food. <laughs> you could just get up and go get the bad food. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so if you stay in private homes, and Cuba has this yeah, huge network now of private homes. This little town that Laura and I live in in Cuba, the heart of climbing in Cuba, Pinales, as I said, it has about 10,000 people. And it's in the middle of a park and <clears throat> World Heritage Sites. Our town of 10,000 people, there are over 1,000 households that rent rooms. No kidding. Households. There are, the other thing you do if you're traveling to support the Cuban people is you don't eat in government restaurants, you instead eat in uh, private restaurants. These are restaurants in people's homes. The Cuban government started allowing these 25 years ago and had all kinds of restrictions. Couldn't have more than 12 chairs. Everyone working in the restaurant had to be a member of the family. And they sort of figured that it would be, we'll let you serve food in your living room. <laughs> okay. You know? Well, now, fast forward <laughs> decades later, uh, you could not tell the difference between a restaurant in Vinales and a restaurant in Jackson Hole. Now, there may be a room in the back that the owner <laughs> still has and calls it a home. Mm -hmm. But they're restaurants. Okay. And there are 150 of them in our valley. Wow. Main Street is just chock-a-buck. One restaurant after another. That's great. It is probably the uh, most um, capitalist city in Cuba. So to get where you live, where would you fly into? Havana? Yeah. And then take a car? three-hour bus ride. In fact, I tell Cubans, uh, people never rent a car in Cuba. It's the most expensive thing, and it isolates you from people. Okay. No, it's good public transportation. Get on the bus. There are taxis. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's these old <laughs> 1950s cars are still running as taxis. Uh-huh. They don't have the original engine anymore. No. <laughs> yeah, it's... But, but they're there, and they're the best way, you know, you... You get to Havana, the easiest way to go out on a tour is just hire a taxi. Mm -hmm. And you get a driver, and, and you get a tour guide for the day. I love it. And it's still relatively inexpensive. It's not like not like anywhere else. But uh, these these ways are still legal to go. I mean, essentially what the, what the, the U.S. government has said, if, if you're in Cuba to engage with the Cuban people, uh, help them economically by doing business with individuals instead of the government, then you qualify under the, the category of support for the Cuban people. And you can book flights online all the way from, well, you can book them from Jackson all the way to Havana. And you don't have to go through Mexico anymore? No, no, no. no third country, it's legal. All you do, the airline website is check which box <laughs> uh -huh. justifies your trip. Cool, which airlines fly into Cuba? Uh, the main ones are, well, American, United, Delta still does. JetBlue, those are the main ones. Southwest was going to and backed off. And American just keeps adding flights. I think they're up to eight or 10 flights a day into Havana alone. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so I, I tell folks the easiest thing is just fly to Miami and then mm -hmm. get on one of the easy, one of the quick flights to Miami, Havana. It's a 40 minute flight. Yeah, that's super easy. I love it. it barely even gets high enough to pressurize the cabin. But. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to get any service because it's too. That's exactly. Yeah. The flight attendants don't. Yeah. Sometimes they have enough time they'll get up and just pass out water bottles. Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> um, going back to climbing, you 
are um, known in the climbing world as helping out climbers and keeping certain areas open for climbers and climbers using certain tools, climbing tools. You are a co-founder of what's called the Access Fund. Yes. And tell me more about what the Access Fund is. Well, it's an advocacy organization. The basic mission is to keep climbing areas open and to protect the climbing environment. That's sort of the the slogan. It's essentially uh, the representatives of of climbers to protect the interests of the sport. It's not an, it doesn't do trips and stuff uh, like that. It's, uh, it's, and it it isn't a promoter of climbing, but it just keeps, it protects it. Uh, Both climbing and the places we climb. And it started out in the 80s because at that time, it was really at the beginning of the growth of climbing, about the mid 80s on. And a new type of climbing was being developed then. It now is commonly called sport climbing. But it's essentially a form of climbing which emphasizes the difficulty of the sport as opposed to the mountaineering aspect of like climbing something like the Grand Teton, which is difficult in terms of endurance and weather, but generally not technically very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Whereas sport climbing, the climbs tend to be short and you get to concentrate on climbing at the highest level you can. And that usually means that you may be taking many falls as you, in effect, practice the route. And, and you improve yourself as a climber. It's almost like an outdoor uh, gym where you're training and getting yourself stronger uh, to climb at a much higher level than you were before. And it's almost always done in places uh, where there aren't natural features that you can use for what climbers call protection, where we use climbing devices, the ones we were talking about before that Yvonne Chouinard would made. Um, and instead they required uh, that we use ex- expansion bolts. We drill a hole, small hole in the rock, put an expansion bolt in, and then that's there to protect it. They've, they've been part of climbing all the way back to the 30s. Uh, first ones were probably placed by David Brower, who was the man who really changed the Sierra Club into the one of the largest advocacy organizations in the world, created Friends of the Earth, quite a few other things. But uh, so they'd been around, but it was rare that a, a, a route was done entirely with spe- expansion bolts. That changed in the 80s, mainly because the introduction of power drills, uh, the made it, and you didn't have to drill these by hand. Portable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that just brought a big influx of new people into the sport. And, and all of a sudden, places where people had never climbed before, city parks, county parks, little tiny crags, you know, like here, Rodeo Wall. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just a little thing, Rodeo Wall. No, no, when you came here to go climb the Grand Teton, you know, rock, you know, now and then rock spring, but Blacktail Buttes, all those little walls. All of a sudden, those became climbing areas. And land managers suddenly had people that were never mm-hmm. <laughs> climbers. Where these people come places, from? <laughs> climbing places where no one had ever climbed. And so it, it caused an immediate uh, conflict in many places in the country. And these and land managers, and, and with power drills, this, this could happen very fast. 
I mean, people could put a dozen routes up in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, they were overwhelmed. And the, a lot of them to deal with that, to kind of get a, a handle what was happening, would, would stop climbing. And they'd close it. And so I was asked to form this access committee of the American Alpine Club because climbing places were being shut all over the West, and some actually in the East as well. Uh, but they're used on private property. And so I put together a group of people, called ourselves a committee. We did that for two or three years. Toward the end of the 80s, we realized that it was too big a problem just to, to be a committee. And so we created a, a new organization called the Access Fund. Managed to, uh, I was the first president, and we managed to keep it going for three or four years before it finally got a good financial base. And now it's got 25 employees, offices all across the United States. <laughs> That's spectacular. Yeah, I, know, it's, I have a hard time recognizing it. <laughs> but uh, no, it's, uh, it's been very successful. In general, almost every climbing area in America is still open. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in general, climbers can still uh, put bolts in wherever they uh, need, wherever they're needed. Uh, there's regulation in different places, but the access fund works with people in developing regulations. You know, if it's it's a question of protecting the environment, we care about it as much as anybody else. So, those things. It's just uh, uh, we've gotten past the point where land managers realize that think that the only way they can do it is shut it down. Mm-hmm. Most of them now know that there are organizations with professional staff, everything from biology. We have everything from biologists to. Uh, <laughs> our own uh, teams that we will send out to help build trails, set up trash programs, help take care of all the, all the other problems that the land managers have to deal with, not just one thing. But Work in um, coordination with these land managers, so as problems are identified that you guys can help yeah. uh, resolve those. Experts and, on yeah. drafting climbing management plans. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, we're at the point where bolts uh, have been placed 30 and 40 years ago, 30 years ago, and they're starting to fail. And so for safety reasons, you know, there's, there needs, now that you have to have programs for anchor replacements mm-hmm. and do it in a way that's environmentally friendly and also more likely to last. I mean, I, I don't, uh, I mean, in Yosemite, when I used to climb there, there were these bolts placed there in the 60s and 70s. And, the little things we call button heads, a quarter inch mm-hmm. <laughs> bolts that they would sit there and spin in the rock. <laughs> um, no one ever thought that you know we had to worry about how long these things would last. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't foresee generations of climbers coming after us. But now you know, it's climbing's a mature sport. That's spectacular. And thank you for what you did. I'm not a climber, but I think it's wonderful that you your passion was so great that you saw a need and you helped them um, help that sport push forward. Thank you is always appreciated. But to me, the best thing about it at a very personal level is to watch successive generations of people come into an organization and bring their own ideas to it and change it, its direction in some ways, usually to expand it uh, and improve it and take it, make it their own passion. And I've, I've watched that happen over and over. You know, it's, they now have a fund where they've gone out and created an endowment 
to buy climbing errors, and now that's a major part of the organization. You know, we never thought we we. It's hard for for those of us that started it to sit there and say, "Oh yeah, I, I deserve credit for that." No, that was someone that came along 15 years later that said, "This is what we're going. This is what we're going to do." Mm-hmm. And it works only because by that time we'd also created, at that time, probably 80 to 100 local climbing organizations. I didn't create any local climbers. That was someone who came along 10 years after I did. And his passion was, we need grassroots people. And went about creating local climbing organizations under the umbrella of the Access Fund. And that sort of evolution keeps happening. But to me, it's always been wonderful to watch other people come along, take what was your passion, Mm -hmm. make it their passion, and take it in an entirely new, higher direction. Well said. Well said. For people listening, you've lived a very full life and fulfilling life. Is there something that you would offer to people as a little bit of wisdom? Um to share that you've learned over the years? That's hard. I don't, <laughs> over the time, I've learned not to trust uh, big questions <laughs> and philosophies. And I've, I've become an incrementalist. <laughs> okay. I kind of believe in small steps. Uh, and even when I was a civil rights lawyer, the biggest cases I did were cases that were, I mean, when we took them, I thought they were just losers. <laughs> And they wound up being <laughs> um, the best. And so it's really hard at the, when you start something to know where it's going to go. Sure. But, you know, I forget the name of the saying. The most important thing is to start. Yes. And you're going to have failures, but what? so what? We all, you know, I used to teach a lot, particularly <laughs> clinical education. I've long ago realized it. <clears throat> you learn more from failures than you do successes. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Most most of us will ascribe successes to ourselves. <laughs> and I realize, well, wait a minute, what what did you really do? <laughs> Whereas, you know, you really have to think about failure. So there's something to be gained. Then. You know, but the saying, the most important thing is to start doing mm-hmm. things. And, and I like what you said as well. Um, just it's incrementally um, is your successes, but you got to fail. I've had some failures with this thing. I can't tell you. Um, there's probably been over six different interviews that I've had to do twice. There's some interviews out there that are electronic fied because there's some corruption in the file and whatnot. And some interviews, you don't hear me very well, but I keep doing it because I love it. I love talking to people and I love learning. And that's right. You, You find what you like and what gives you pleasure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been lucky. I've always, I've had a career where the main thing is I've done work I loved. I never felt I was going to work. Because <laughs> you loved what you're doing. Well said, and that, Armando. That, that is such a privilege. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what am I? A, a one, less than 1% of lawyers who, who probably are really <laughs> happy? <laughs> wake up every That's day. because you're Cuban. Wake up every day <laughs> excited to go to work. Yeah. I mean, that's... That's unfortunately in America. That's not the. That's not true anymore. And you've just got to be open to the possibilities of life. When I was finishing, I when I finished my career, <laughs> I wasn't finished it. But I said after 25 years of doing trial, 
for big cases, I, I was done with that. I wanted to do something different. Mm -hmm. And of course, I was analytical, so I started looking around which people have made big changes in their life. And I, I interviewed a couple, two or three friends of mine, or people at least I knew, who had made major shifts in their life. One guy went from law school professor to general manager of the Oakland A's. There's a... That's a big one. Another one went from being a lawyer to the director of the California Academy of Science. And it turned out it was just luck. But the most important thing was they were open to it. Something came along, an opportunity, a total change of life, and they just said, why not? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love it. Why not? Just... Just start it. And do it. Well said. You know, I'm, things are better now for people. It's rare that you make a life choice that you can't reverse and go do something else. People today have so many more opportunities. Mm -hmm. You know, when I started working, practicing law in 66, I mean, the assumption is you that first job was your life. True. And people then went to work, big corporations and stuff. That was it. Mm-hmm. What's Yogi Berra saying? When you're traveling down the road of life and you get to the fork in the road, take it. Take it. <laughs> right. That's right. Now it's for real. <laughs> That's indeed. There is a fork that you can you can take. Indeed. Yeah. So if people want to connect with you, there is a connect with us on climbing cubaclimbing.com's right. website. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easy to reach out to Armando. And you're going to be heading to Cuba pretty soon. Yeah. But we uh, we now have uh, internet at our house even. Oh, that's big. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a big thing. And then, yeah. Mm -hmm. The previous uh, three years for me to get my email, mm -hmm. I still would get email over there, even at Cuba Climbing. I'd have to ride my bike into town because <laughs> we're on the outskirts. Uh find this hotspot, which was where the phone company was, which just provides the internet, and sit outside with uh, 50 or so Cubans on mm -hmm. the curbs as everyone is downloading email or talking on uh, uh, you know, Skype-type systems to people around the world. But now we're, we've got it at home. That's awesome. Yeah, and uh, no, yeah, you can reach me through uh, cubaclimbing.com. I love to help people travel to Cuba. I urge folks to, to do it. I'm going to go home to my wife and talk to her about it now, tonight, yeah. about going to Cuba. Take our kids. That'd be it's fun. A great place to go with kids. Oh, they'd love it. Yeah. Cubans love children and happy to help you with your kids. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Armando. This has been a pleasure. And, and Likewise for me. So. I really appreciate it. Well, have a great day and safe travels back to Cuba. Yeah. I, and hopefully we're going to have a good winter there. Yeah. I hope so. Take care. Thank you. Been a pleasure. To learn more about Armando and how to visit Cuba, please visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com, episode number 60. I do love hearing from my listeners and subscribers, so if you have feedback or suggestions, send me an email to connect at the JacksonHoleConnection.com. Please remember to visit my friends at Giver.com. That's G-I-V-E-R.com or at the jacksonholeconnection.com slash giver, G-I-V-E-R. And I could not create this podcast with the help and support of my lovely wife, Laura, my editor, Michael Morey, marketing guru, Tana Hoffman, and the musical guy, Luke Taylor. 
Hope you all have had a great time today, and I really look forward to seeing you back next time here at the Jackson Hole Connection for the next episode.